Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. It's Roscoe here, your co-host, just taking a moment to introduce today's special guest. Yes, I think you know who we're talking about. It's the winner of last weekend's Dubai Duty Free International Irish Open. Yes, it's the one and only Lucas Herbert. He joins us from Edinburgh as he prepares for the Scottish Open this weekend. This is a great chat. Lucas, as always, is open, honest. He gives more than he gets, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy this and take a lot of out of this from Lucas's journey that you can apply to your own golf as we all do everyday golfers enjoying our golf. We can learn from the best, and Lucas is proving to us that he is one of the best. He's very generous with his time. We look forward to this chat. Enjoy. Thanks for your feedback. Thanks for your support with the, all of the other podcasts. It continues to blow us away how engaged you are in this content, and we will keep delivering it while you are engaged. That's part of the benefit of being part of the Mental Mastery Clubhouse. Enjoy the podcast, and we'll see you soon. Welcome to the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast by Dare to Dream, the show dedicated to fun, practical mental performance strategies for your golf game. Join mental performance coach Jamie Glazier and co-host Ross Flanagan as they discuss how to manage your mind in one of the craziest sports there is. Lucas Herbert, winner of this year's Dubai Duty Free Irish Open. Welcome to the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back. It's a pleasure to have you back in such auspicious times after a win on the European Tour. Lucas, how are you, son? Boys, thanks for having me. It's nice to be back in this, uh, this kind of fashion. Mate, it's a pleasure to have you back. It's been a while. I think last time we spoke was end of last year, and uh, I think uh, a bit's gone on for you since then. Jamie Glazier up there in Queensland, how are you? Roscoe, I'm uh, I'm very well. Luckily, I've uh, recovered some sleep that I lost over the weekend, uh, but I probably won't recover the years that I might have lost watching parts of that final round. Um, mate, what uh, what an amazing week, uh, amazing weekend, and um, so good to have you back on the podcast. Uh, there is a lot of interest in this discussion for various reasons. One, obviously, the copious amounts of wine that you might have had at dinner tonight and the value that that may bring, as well as uh, some insights into your win and what you experienced out there uh, at the Irish Open. So thanks for joining us, buddy. I was going to say, Roscoe, I feel like we only chat when I win or when I'm drunk, and we've got both covered at this stage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, before before we digest... You know, last week, and once again, congratulations. And uh, and a lot of people uh, that I've passed by in the golf world in the last uh, couple of days asked me to explicitly pass on their congratulations to you because I had a fair probably idea that we might be catching up uh, on this. So they all pass, half of Melbourne that I know in the golfing world, pass their congratulations on. Um, but the last time we spoke, it was just around the time that you were about to go back to um, finish off the race to Dubai, which we now know never happened. And I've got a fair sort of feeling that maybe that decision back then was a big part of setting up this year and, and the change and, and, and the whole process of, of getting to where you've got today and hopefully some great more results coming. But tell us about setting up this year. What what was that like? And if you want to tell us about, you know, why you chose not to go to the race to Dubai and finish off that, because I think you were like 10th or 8th or 7th or whatever in that um, pretty big event, um, <clears throat> but you made a change. What happened back then? About <laughs> a couple of wines, I'll give it a crack. Uh, yeah, so I was supposed to go back and play Dubai uh, the end of last year. So there's two events there back to back. Obviously, the second one being the, the final. I think at that stage, top 10 on the race to Dubai, we're going to get the open. And obviously, like there's a, there's a bunch of events that you were going to get from a top 10 finish and, and obviously the money as well. 
um, dealing with it was that I was, I think with the flight home and everything, I was going to get home uh, to Oz and be in quarantine on Christmas day. And I already spent, I, I think I flew back to Queensland in March when everything sort of was just taking off COVID wise. So I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen my family, hadn't seen my friends for best part of nine months. And I came home, I went home, I went back to Bendigo for a week. I wanted to see everyone before I went away and sort of, I had a week at home and it just wasn't, wasn't enough time. I went home for a week and practiced a little bit, saw my mates a little bit, hung out my family a little bit. And, um, yeah, I, was, I remember we were driving to the airport. I probably got about five minutes down the road and we got the email from the European tour to register. So I go through, um, to register for the tournament and I put down my details when I'm turning up and caddy info and everything like that. And I just remember finishing that and went like, yeah, I'm not sure I love this. Sat there for about 20 minutes just stewing it and I was texting one of my mates and I was also texting Jamie and I was like, I really don't want to go. I've, I've no, I really have no desire to go because at that point I think I was going to, yeah, I was going to miss Christmas with my family. I was really not going to see my mates again for because I knew this year would be a long year. I was probably not going to be in Australia. So I knew I was going to, I'd probably see my mates for the last time in the best part of 12 months and I just, I really wasn't ready to do that. So yeah, I, I think we got to, we got to the car park behind the runway at Tullamarine. We pulled in there. I told dad to pull in there, sat there for about five minutes. I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing it. Let's go home. So I just, yeah, went home. Didn't uh, text Pewey. Finally, I Pewey sitting in front of me. Text Pewey on the way home. I was like, hey, man, this is a really weird one, but um, I'm not going to play this week or next week. Uh, <laughs> yeah, go home if you want. <laughs> so, now, Herbie, was, was, that, uh, was, that, was that Pewey's first event back on the bag? Yeah, I just rehired. I just turned up to the event. And everyone's going, who are you working for? And he's going, oh, I'm working for Lucas again. And then 20 minutes later, he goes, oh, I'm actually not. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was kind of it like funny to laugh and look back on now. But yeah, it was it was definitely um, it was definitely the right decision because it felt like I got I got that good that period of time at home where I was able to spend a lot of time with my mates and just do the things that you want to do and 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 not worry about being a golfer for a little bit. And that I think that's definitely allowed me this year to not feel homesick. You know, usually it's usually been about ten weeks in the past where about the tenth week I'm like, all right, get me out of here, I'm, I'm done. I'll, I need to get home and I need to I need to reset. And I think, I mean, I left home January eighteenth, so I want to say I'm nearly at six months now, and I, I don't feel the urge to get back to Australia right now. So uh, I think that definitely helps not playing those two weeks. Um, it meant that I slipped outside that top ten and, and didn't get the open start when we when we wanted to. But I mean. We're here now. We've got an open start next week. Um, thanks, Carol, last week. So, so it's uh, turned out to be a good decision. So that decision, you know, took you to the US where you set up, you know, let's call it base over there. And that was a bit of a change because, you know, you're obviously a full European tour member for you know a good few years ahead now and but wanting to get those starts on the PGA Tour. So, you know, was that a, was that a gamble or just calculated decisions or how did – you know, what was your thoughts around, you know, setting up camp down in Florida and um, and trying to, you know, grind that PGA Tour um, position? Look, there wasn't really a lot of thinking behind it, I'll be honest. Uh, it went along with the rest of my life and that there's not a lot of planning involved. Um, I, I, de- I knew when I was in hotel quarantine last year, I came back obviously after Wentworth, did my two weeks. And when I was in that process, I, I, I mean, it was crap. It's not really much fun. Jamie, you've done it. Um, it's pretty – you've got to be pretty tough mentally to get through it because 
I can see why a lot of people are struggling to, to deal with it. You just no fresh air, no human contact for two weeks. It's just, it's very weird. Uh, and especially as a golfer too, I, I really didn't feel like there was much I could do. You know, for, if you take Jamie for an example, he can do a lot of uh, a lot of FaceTime or Skype or Zoom meetings, or he can you know get some work done. Or I think you were writing a book at the time, mate, or you were you were doing stuff that was quite productive. Whereas as a golfer, there's not much you can do. You know, you can't really work on your swing in there. And I basically just tried to uh, boost the stock of Uber Eats for two weeks whilst I was in there. So um, a real waste of two weeks of my life. Uh, and I just felt like if I was going to do that two or three times this year, it was just that, you know, they're, they're, all of a sudden there's a month and a half of your life gone. Uh, and it's not even like it's a month and a half spent at home. So, yeah, I felt like I wanted to get somewhere overseas anyway. And, and I mean, America's very blase with their COVID restrictions, if, if you want to call it COVID restrictions, because there is none. So I, I thought I wanted to get over in America somewhere. And then I, I went to, we went to Florida the week before concession uh, for the WGC. And I think I was there about 12 hours. I'm like, yeah, this is where I need to be. So I think I, jo- I joined Iworth. And the first time I actually had a look at the place was in the meeting to join there. It wasn't like I went and played there and thought it was good or saw the practice facilities and thought it was good. I was just like, yeah, it'll be good. And just joined there off assuming it'll be, it would be good, which it has been. Um, but I was, yeah, it was very, very much not planned, but I felt like, I just felt like that was where I needed to be. I felt like at least if I was based overseas somewhere, I could travel to Europe and I could still play golf. And, you know, part of, unfortunately, part of my life right now is the fact that I have to sacrifice face-to-face time with family and friends. But it's a sacrifice that I make because uh, I feel like if you, if you got to the age of 45 or 50 and, and and had a, a good hard look at yourself and thought that you threw your career down the drain because COVID made it too hard to travel for a year. I thought that was just a bit of a pathetic excuse and that I could probably tough it out for a year or two um, over here at, at worst. And you know what? If it didn't work out, I can just go home anyway. It seems like it's working out, that plan, and uh, congratulations for making those decisions. And we, we know because you're so open with uh, how close you are to your family and friends and how much you value that time. So to make that decision, well done. How would you describe how it's been so far? You know, how, how would you rate sort of, you know, the performances and, and, and what's happened in and around your golf life in those making that decision to stay over there? Yeah, it's been, it's been a very good year for my development. Um, it's only really shown up in the last three events, the actual results, but prior to that, it had been very good in the development of me as a golfer, just, and, to be honest, a lot of it was mental patterning. Um, maybe not even like throw Jamie out of the bus here. Maybe not even stuff that Jamie and I had worked on. It was more just being exposed to it in those PGA Tour events. Uh, I feel like in Europe, the golf courses the golf courses are pretty easy in comparison. Um, you play in America and there's no bailout. Every hole is generally every hole is quite a tough hole. It's not as if you're going to get watered down the right hand side and as far left as you want to hit it. Uh, you play a lot of places here in Europe and there's not, there's not a lot of tee shots where you really have to stand there and just, and thread one. Um, most holes, you know, you can leak it a bit right and it's going to be fine or you can leak it a little left or, you know, you can just hit it longer the green and it's okay. Whereas in America, it, it tests your game a lot. So I just didn't probably have the right mental processes in place to be able to play that kind of golf. I think I was, I, I probably spent a good chunk of my career uh, learning how to play in Europe by avoiding the bad miss and knowing that my short game was good enough and knowing that my 
ability to score on par five, probably good enough where I was never going to miss a cut. So it was, it was a, a lot of rewiring myself mentally to be able to play in the U S which, yeah, it, just, it took, it took a bit of time to, to kind of get right. And also there's a big, a big learning curve in like accepting failure too. You can genuinely play quite nicely out there on the PGA tour and miss a cut. And it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily say anything bad about you. And that was, there was just some, there was some really good learning experiences like that where, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had them without playing those events. So the results kind of didn't look great up until Memorial and I felt like I'd learned a lot. And then I traveled with, I traveled with Simi for two or three years, my, my physio, and she'd obviously kept my body in, in pretty good shape. Um, and kept me injury free, kept my, kept everything moving the way I wanted it to. So it felt like when I turned up to play each day, you know, I wasn't tight. I wasn't sore. And you know, if I felt like I was hitting a little push draw on Thursday, that, that feel continued through the week. Whereas Simi didn't want to travel this year and, um, and I don't blame her. And so I, I guess we tried to do, try to do everything on my own in that respect. So whether it was my own kind of stretching and, and work on releasing muscles and, and whatever, when we got to tournaments or, um, seeing whoever was available on site, uh, and it just probably wasn't working the way I wanted it to. So I made the call after Quail Hollow. I missed the cut there and felt like I was never really a chance to make the cut from the beginning because my body was in such bad shape going into the week. I made the decision that I wanted to find someone full-time to look after my body. And I found Luke who's sitting a metre and a half away from me. So I'm going to say as minimal nice things about him as possible. But yeah, he was. I called him and about two weeks later he was over here. I uh, had ne- never been on a golf course before, so that we've got some hilarious stories about that. But uh, uh, yeah, he's been he's been great. Uh, he's kept my body, you know, in a in a way that I can I can trust I can trust each day when I turn up to the golf course. If whatever feel I had the day before, if I use that same feel, it's it's probably going to be pretty damn close um, from a performance point of view. And that's been the that's been the biggest change from you know he got he he turned up at Memorial on the, and. Uh, Memorial Travelers and, and the Irish Open have been my best three results of the year very comfortably so far. So um, He's quickly become, uh, Roscoe, quickly become known as uh, the difference, we call him. The diff- uh, Lukey, uh, the difference. Um, and it's it's a massive call, part I, of... I just call him a flog. He's not the difference. <laughs> but no, look, I think um, Luke's involvement in the team so far, although very short in time, um, huge in, in, in impact for sure. And, and not just him working on getting Herbie's body, but the personality type that he is and how well he fits in with Herbie, how well he fits in with the team. And, uh, and as all the listeners know about Herbie, the team is, a, is an important part of, of, um, of, you know, just I suppose for any business at an elite level, you know, the team and the synergy and, 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 and everyone getting, getting along and coming together is important. It's been fantastic to have him, him on board. It's a very niche position and a very difficult position. I, I didn't, I, I struggled earlier in the year when we're trying to look for that one person that can uplift uh, and uproot their life to come over and travel. I thought that was going to be a big ask. And I think we've been so lucky to, to get him, uh, get him on board and involved. And yeah, as Herbie said, knows nothing about golf uh, and, and, and I think uh, nothing about fashion as well from what I've seen, but there are things we can certainly, um, there are things we can certainly work on, but uh, he does have he's a mullet, which makes it. will relay that. He's not happy about that call. <laughs> <laughs> He does have a mullet, which does make up for my deficiency in the hair part as well. So, um, good balance point there. But, um, mate, okay. I think I think on a serious note, 
a couple of things that, you know, when we're at concession, uh, we, we spoke a little bit about, you know, the commitment side of things from a performance point of view that we worked on that you've done a phenomenal job with. And as you said, the US courses have really made you step up on that commitment side of things. But the sacrifices not only you've made um, this year, uh, but the sacrifices that Pui has made as well and now Luke has made, again, uprooting their life and, and, and being on the road full time, I think is, you know, one thing a lot of people may not know about you is you, for me anyway, probably the most, I've never seen an athlete that invests in themselves more than you invest in yourself. You take risks. We've talked a lot about our uh, similarities in regards to the gambling notion. We're more than happy to gamble on ourselves and take risks. And and you've done that again with your setting up base in the US. As you say, you, you, you bought a membership to Allworth without even seeing the place. You bought a car. You you you, you know you rent an apartment. Um, you just you just go all in on yourself, and that is unbelievable to see and also necessary for someone that you know grows up in Australia and their career is in the US or in Europe you, you definitely have to do that so I'm forever proud of you for that um, the the time spent in the US the Monday qualifying and then the top 20s in in, in in you know the PJ tour events how much of an impact did that little bit of a journey in the US set you up for this result in Ireland yeah well I think I mean, it was just really, I think it was really satisfying there playing at Memorial, playing really nicely there and then playing really nicely at the Travellers. Uh, I felt like I belonged there. I felt like I was genuinely competing in those golf tournaments. I wasn't kind of making up the numbers after making the cut if I did make the cut. Um, I, I definitely felt like if I played well on the weekend at both those events, I could have really contended to win the tournament. And it, it wasn't like I had a week out to finish top 20. You know, I, I, I just played, I played nicely. Don't get me wrong, it's not like I played badly, but I didn't feel like I played out of my skin to finish in those positions. You know, Sunday at Memorial, I made triple-double on 12-13. Otherwise, you know, that could be a top-five finish. Or, you know, the Travellers felt like it was just, it just wasn't quite there the whole week. There was there was some nice little nine-hole stretches there where I played, played quite well, but then there was just a couple of shots here and there that just, you know, just let me down. So, I mean, that, that, like, that was quite satisfying. And then... So you turn up in Ireland and I, I don't really don't want to sound cocky, but I will because uh, I've had a few wines. I just genuinely felt like I was probably better than most of the players there. I felt like I had a handful of guys to beat. I've been playing on world-class golf courses against some of the best players in the world. And it's like when you go back down to that European tour level, which is still a great level of golf, don't get me wrong, but being conditioned at that next level up, it just felt like a, it felt like it was a very achievable event for me to win. Um, and then I sort of had a, I had a flick through the phone earlier in the week and like you sort of look at the, the betting odds that you got uh, to win the tournament early in the week. And I was almost, I almost felt a bit disrespected at how low they had me. And I was almost like added fire to be like, I'm going to prove you guys wrong. You know, like you should have me at a lot shorter odds than that. So yeah, that, like they were, the, they were definitely things that helped. And it was funny with earlier in the week, there was discussion about, there was a WGC event there, I think in 2003 or 2004. And, uh, someone told me the Tiger won with 25 under, so that kind of also put a little that put a little scoring goal in my head that I was like, all right, let's try and catch that. And it, all of a sudden, like the golf tournament turned into like, let's just see how how low Lucas can go. It was it, it didn't really matter how anyone else was playing, and I had a really good attitude towards that until probably the back nine on Sunday. I, I just I was like, I want to try and get to, like I was trying to get to 
12 under par through two rounds and then I was trying to get to 20 under through three rounds and then I was trying to get to 20 under through four and it was always seeing these scoring goals and it, like it didn't it, it never even really comprehended to me if anyone else was two shots behind me or three shots behind me or tied for the lead um, when you were on the way around I was just I just had these scoring goals in my head that I was trying to trying to tick off Sunday night of the travelers you we you FaceTime me. Um, and I remember you said one thing to me in preparing to fly over to Europe for the next two events. Can you remember what you probably can't remember because you've had a few wines? I definitely can't remember. You said, let's go and win one of these two. What do you reckon? That sounds like something I would say, yeah. Yeah. And then Saturday night after the third round, you FaceTimed me as well and you said, I just have this strong feeling that I'm going to, no matter what happens tomorrow, I'm going to win this event. And you probably can't remember that either. No, I do remember that. I, I definitely had that feeling Saturday. It's very hard to block out the fact that you are winning, like that you're leading a golf tournament, the fact that you, you know, you could win the next day, the fact that it could have a big impact on potentially your career, potentially the next six months, potentially the next two years uh, by winning that tournament. So it's, it's very hard to not have thoughts about what that could lead to if you do win um, come into your mind. So, but I, ju- I just felt like I was playing so nicely and I had such a good attitude on the golf course that whole week. And yeah, um, it was just the way I felt, the way I felt on Saturday night was not like I'd felt any time before going into a final round close to the lead or in the lead. And yeah, it was, um, I mean, it would have been. It, it almost would have been bad if I had have lost because I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have. It would have been like I wouldn't have known how to win again because that feeling was just so strong that I was like, "I'm going to get this done." And then even you know, even the whole day on Sunday, it, it never. It never felt like I wasn't going to win the tournament. You know, you had us made a great part on fourteen to get tied for the lead. It still just felt like this is really cool, and you know. It's, it, it, ne- it never computed to me that like, wow, this is now like, this is game on. This is tournaments on the line here. It, it just felt like it was such a, it was such a, it was down to me. If I, if I went about things the right way, then I control, control my own destiny. Cause if I, if I played those last four holes the way I should have played them, which I did, no one was going to catch me. Yeah. And I think mate, for me, that final round, could not have played out any better from my my point of view and from what I watch when it comes to your performance and got off to a cracking start. Um, just some beautiful birdies, you know, uh, through the first three holes. Um, a lot of the questions that have come in around, you know, what do you want to ask Lucas about the his win in Ireland? Everyone was like, how the hell did you keep things together when you couldn't keep it on the planet for a couple of holes? Like, People are like, how do you not lose your shit when, you know, you're, you're hitting a couple of right balls or a left ball? You're, you're not quite sure where the ball's going to go for a few holes. Talk to me about how you got off to a really nice start and then almost all of a sudden you just couldn't find your golf swing for a few holes. How did you navigate that, manage that, and what was your process to to get back on track? Yeah, so fair, like so fairly in-depth analysis of this. So I actually never really – I never hit driver until the 15th. And I'd driven it really nicely on Saturday. 
And the fifth tee, I just, I made a slight adjustment because it started raining and lost the ball right. So I didn't really stress too much about that. And then I lost the ball on seven right. Yeah. And when I say I've, I've just hit it right and actually lose the ball, but yeah. um, you know, I've hit them right and, um, and you know, they're bad swings. And I guess obviously your brain's going nuts. You're trying to, you're trying to think back through all of the work that you've done for three plus years. You know, when was the last time I've, I've lost shots right like that? Or when, when have I felt like that threw the ball and lost it there? And then, you're trying to think, okay, when I was when I was doing that, how did I? How do we go about trying to change that? What were the feels that we were trying to make to to get that to to act differently? Um, we tried a couple and didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on top of that, I got, I got pretty lucky. Uh, we found the ball on five to take to be able to take it unplayable, which was big because that it was it seemed pretty deep. Um, in the it was in like stinging nettles, Pewy said his knee was uh, really sore after going to find that one. So yeah. we got really lucky and we found that ball. Um, we got lucky on seven, and then we found we found it, and it was we had a shot to chip out. Uh, it was pretty pretty dense in there. It could have easily been, you know, a chip out to then chip out again. Um, and then on eight, we had a window to hit it through. So and still missed the window, and it flicked out somewhere that was still playable for a third. So. Um, you know, like all winners are going to get, they, they, they just we got a little bit lucky there and, and we got a couple of breaks and we hit bad shots and we probably hit them on holes where you could hit them as well. You know, you could have, you could have easily lost those shots left or right uh, on holes where you couldn't afford to do that. Um, but yeah, it was just, just a lot of soul searching in that, um, you know, what was I looking for in my, in my goal swing to try and turn this around. But then I just, I, I worked pretty hard on my putting that morning to try and get the speed down because, you know, imagine, imagine drinking four or five coffees and then trying to go to putt. That's almost what it feels like when you're trying to putt in that last round. You, you just got so much adrenaline running through your veins that you just, you can't, you can't use any feels to hit shots. You just, you're purely going on natural kind of instincts. Um, and a lot of the time that is, to hit the ball softer because you've got so much juice running through your veins. So I worked really hard Sunday morning to get the speed right. And that was massive because I was able to hold some really nice parts there on in that stretch, sort of five through, through 10 there. And that really kept me in the golf tournament. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess just that, that underlying belief that I was, I was such a better player than everyone else I was playing against um, meant that I kept that lead and I just, I just kept just kept in front. I just kept that number. You know, I lost a shot on sit on five, but then I never dropped another shot after that. And just the fact that I didn't make another bogey just meant that, you know, the guys that were trying to catch me never got that chance where I came back to them. They were always having to make more and more birdies to catch me. They were having to try to push harder to catch me. And um yeah, whether you know, some of it's obviously a little bit of luck, but then obviously some of it's uh, I worked pretty damn hard on, on getting that stuff right. And it was really nice to execute uh, the shots that I did under pressure. And I felt like I had some good experience too from Memorial and from Travelers in playing late on Sunday and the feeling that you have playing late on Sunday. You know, like we looked back after Memorial and realized that I think nearly every single shot we hit for the day missed the target long because you're just that little bit more amped up on Sunday and you feel like you hit a 130 yard gap wedge and it goes 140. And 
you might feel like you're fine and you're in control and you're not nervous or anything like that, but it's just, it's just natural. It's just, everything just runs through you that little bit harder on Sunday. And it just means that a little bit more. And all of a sudden when you're on a full yardage, you don't have to hit it hard. Just a, just a really smooth shot is going to get that yardage very easily. And like that was something I learned from that event. And then I was able to take into Sunday there in, uh, in Ireland. I mean, I think I flew that driver on 17, 330 yards. And I, I honestly felt like I just smoothed that thing. You know, just, just it made a really nice Thursday swing that just got it in the fairway. But, you know, you look, you look back on that video and it looks like I've just absolutely tagged it. So there was just so many little lessons that I learned from the, from the events prior to that. And yeah, I got, I, it was a combination of a little bit of luck, a little bit of experience and a little bit of, you know, hard work that, um, that got me through it. I think the thing that I, I really love is that you never press the panic button. Um, and on, you know, the listeners of the podcast, you know, talk, you know, know about how much we talk about the panic button, Roscoe, and, about having more of an informational approach versus an emotional response. And, uh, uh, you know, seeing Herbie go through that um, was just he stayed calm. His body language stayed the same throughout everything. Um, but this is where I want to bring Pui in uh, because a lot of there were a lot of questions. Because we had great audio on the final round and we could hear everything that you two guys were saying, um, it was some absolute, it was gold listening to you two, how you communicate, how you work together, how Pewey took the reins when he needed to and, and, and really, I suppose, took control of a couple of situations. Um, there are a lot of questions around uh, Pew Dog's involvement um, and, you know, what he experienced out there. So, Pewey, uh, talk to us about that little bit of a stretch, mate, um, and how how you saw it from your perspective, what you needed, or Herbie was, you know, just fantastic in how he was processing a lot of that information. Or was there a time where you had to grab him by the throat pretty much and go, Hey, we're doing this here. I'm just bringing him around now for you. <clears throat> fantastic. There you go. The picture quality just improves a little bit. <laughs> I also have had a couple of red wines, so this might get very interesting. Uh, I've government mitts though, so we should be safe. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was it was obviously such a good start. It was a dream start to birdie two and three. Uh, just stroked in a couple of absolutely unbelievable puts there, and then yeah, the t- the tee shot on five was probably just so unexpected because you know Heavy had driven the ball so well all week. Um, I didn't really think it, it would get to the trouble. So it was only when we got down there and Radar, um, Wayne Riley, was kind of coming back out from the trees. And I said to Heavy, I said, oh, he's coming back out of the trees. It must be fine. But he's actually coming out to smoke a cigarette. It wasn't because wasn't because the ball was sitting fine at all. It was because he just wanted a dart. <laughs> so when we got down there, the ball was, the, the, the ball spots were pointed into the absolute cabbage. And I kind of, wriggled my way in there to have a look, see if I could identify the ball and got stung by some stinging nettles, which, you know, sometimes you just got to put yourself in front of the bullets and, you know, <laughs> take one for the team. So um, I uh, found the golf ball and thought, holy shit, this isn't very nice. This is, you know, there's no, uh, even Herbie can't play this one. It was just buried. It was, it was nasty. But then I kind of left him to it and went off and got a, a yardage. More so in my head straight away, it was, well, what's the yardage to lay up? Where are we going to lay up to? 
uh, when I came back to the bag, uh, Herbie had taken the drop, and as he as he dropped the ball, it kind of it kind of too hopped and then sat up on a nice big sort of you know big flyer of a lie. Um, and I was still <clears throat> doing the maths, trying to figure out where we were going to hit it to give ourselves a good wedge shot in. And then Herbie says, um, "Oh, look at this lie! You know, any interest in going for the green?" And I just because I hadn't considered that at all, you know, it's not. <laughs> glass off, empty glass off, full, but I'd already made my mind up that we were going to lay up. I hadn't seen, even looked at a shot because of where the pin was as well. It was over the bunk on the right-hand side. And Herbie's kind of flashed me that question, you know, any interest in, in, in this shot? And I just looked at it and thought, not really. Like the wind was out of the left and the pin was over on the right, over some trees and all the rest of it. So um, I guess I just kind of stuck to my guns more so because I hadn't even considered the, the other option. Um, and like I reminded him, I was like, mate, you, you know, your wedge game's brilliant. The greens are soft. You know, we, we kind of discussed it between ourselves. The greens are soft. You're going to throw a dart at it. Uh, not the Wayne Riley type, but, you know, throwing, throwing a ball that's going to stop on the green pretty quickly. So for me, it was a no-brainer. And it was more a case of like, let's not make double or triple here and just let everyone else back in the tournament because we've got it not sewn up, but we're in a, a really comfortable position here. We can get away with making, you know, bogey. But if we make double or triple, we're bringing everybody else back into it. So, yeah. And yeah. we talked about this. We talked about this over dinner tonight. It, it was two years ago. Herbie might have been a bit more stubborn and might have might have pushed harder to take on the adventurous shocks. It probably would have only been a. Originally, it was talk about a seven iron, and that probably went down to a six iron. You know, he probably would have fought harder to take on that shot. And two years ago, I probably wouldn't have been as strong and, and you know held my ground as much. So. Once you pitch that out back into the fairway and it, you know, it was fine there and we hit on the green or there thereabouts, that was kind of the first, I felt like the first hurdle sort of, you know, the first speed bump sort of managed to, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't a problem even though JV, did JV make birdie there? Yeah. yeah. So there's a two there pretty quickly. Um, but even then, it, it still felt like we were, you know, we were comfortable. And then when the, the next one, Went into the trees on seven. And that one, that one was quite a shock because that was two iron, and he again he hit his two iron like laser beams all week. Um, we got up there to that ball, and again the the the, the ball spotters did a tremendous job, and they found that one. Um, and we had probably a gap that again that I looked at, you know, pretty much sideways to almost backwards. I was like, well, that's a nice big gap. We can chip it out there. And as always, Herbie sees a gap that's half the size, about the size of a dartboard, 50 yards in front of us, um, and says, oh, well, we, could, we could go that way. But again, it's like I'm the sort of more conservative of the duo. So to me, it was like, well, we can go out sideways and still hit, you know, probably a, a wedge or a nine-nine to the green. It's not, it's not worth the extra risk. And again, he just, because he's in such a good headspace that, that week, he just took that advice on board and, and chipped it out backwards hitting eight times to nine feet and all of a sudden we make par and, and JV makes bogey and there was such a he make par oh he did he up and down out of that bunky right but there was such a sort of a potential two shot swing going on there in in in, in uh, Johannes's favour and then it ended up not being so so that all kind of felt it was all a bit of a whirlwind but it was all still under control and then we got to the eighth tee box and um yeah, you'd hit such good drives down the eight for a week. I just, I kind of stood up and just 
very confidently was waiting for this ball to go smashing down the middle of the fairway and it went exit stage left, which was probably the more worrying one because I had no idea what was over there. We, we hadn't even looked at that part of the golf course all week and it was a long way left. And then we walked off the tee box um, and we'd probably taken two or three steps down the hill and then a red flag was waved by the marshals down there, which you know, anyone that's played tournament golf knows that a red flag is, is not something you want to see. Um, and I jammed the brakes on pretty quick, so much so that I almost wrenched my left kneecap off and, and was hobbling around for the next sort of two hours around the golf course, trying not to look like I was a you know 80-year-old man, which I do a pretty good impersonation of anyway. Um, and so, yeah, we, went, we walked back up to the tee box to hit a provisional ball, and then someone on the radio said, no, they found it. And I thought, Jesus. <laughs> You could have wrapped it in bacon and thrown it, you know, thrown Lassie in there and he wouldn't have found it. But we got down there and the ball was literally sat in a tunnel that had been created for this generator box that they that they built in there. And again, we've talked about it already. You just feel like destiny is on your side at that point. You know, it's, it's, it's not about fate and that kind of thing, but it, you just think, well, wow, you know, we've, we've pulled it off again here. We've got a gap. We can hit, you know, a seven iron through this gap and get it somewhere up there. So I go out and, and, and stand by the fairway, waiting for this ball to come whooshing past me and go, you know, 180 yards down the fairway, and then it it clunks a tree right in front of me and drops at my feet almost. So again, sudden quick panic, not panic, but a quick change of plan. Okay, we're not hitting a wedge shot in here now. We're now hitting it from 258 yards into the wind, out the rough, trying to bend it around a tree. And it was because things were happening quickly, but without being alarmingly out, you know, sort of uncomfortable. It was just like, okay, right, new plan. Now we'll hit three iron to the front of the green, and, and you know, it gets out of there with par. And that was the first fist pump on that at that eighth green. Um, I've probably talked for long enough there about three holes, but you know me. And I think that's there's so much good stuff there. I, I for me, watching you guys and listening to you guys talk. Um, <coughs> listening to you, Pewey, take the reins, but then seeing, as you say, seeing Herbie just, uh, I won't say, he'd certainly not give give up that conversation, but just recognise that that was the right thing to do. Just the way you guys communicated was absolutely beautiful. And, you know, even just what you said there, Pewey, about having the flexibility of all of a sudden this is the plan, now something's changed, being able to pivot without panic, um, I think is something that the listeners are going to really resonate with because we talk a lot about that flexibility and not have a, a rigid mindset or approach to how things should go. Um, so you both of you just were perfect examples of, of how to do that. Um, so, yep. mate, that, that, that's fantastic. Um, I was, I was, I was just, um, sorry, go on. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add in that, like, the, the best thing about our partnership is we're quite – well, there's almost – we almost got a mini team within our team going on in that Luke, myself and and Nick now are pretty much like we're at all we're at all the events. Um, obviously you guys are at home um, supporting us, but you know, it's us three at events doing the majority of the you know, the team presence and it's it's funny it's almost like we're so opposite that it balances each other out so nicely. Um, you know, I'm such a gambler and I'm such an optimistic, you know, a glass is half full kind of guy. I always think that things are going to come off in my favor. And obviously, you know, that's, that's great in a, in an aspect, but um, Nick's great in that 
he's got such a good, um, you know, calm head and more of a, he can, he can see more of the dangers that are going on. And sometimes you need that, um, that influence around you. And then we've got Luke, who's the most superstitious human on the planet. And <laughs> I, I played badly for a stretch of holes on Saturday when he was wearing a white jacket. So he's now throwing that white jacket out. You know, he's, he's just one of those type of people. And we kind of all balance each other out really nicely. And that's the, that's the really good thing about Nick and I's partnership, I think, out there on the golf course is the, you know, the things that my strengths kind of complement his weaknesses and my weakness and his strength complement my weaknesses really well. So, you know, I think forever I look for a caddy who is perfect. And I just now have realized you're not going to find someone who's perfect, but Nick is perfect in his own kind of way in that the things that, you know, the things that he does really well complement me and the things that maybe his weaknesses are actually the things that I'm quite strong at and I can kind of bring to the table and, and make up for. Herbie, yeah. do, you, do you ever go back and look back at some of that vision? I've looked at it so many times yeah. since Sunday. Okay. I, when I was watching and, and, you know, I move my whole circadian rhythm changes at this time of year because, you know, the European tour and Scotland and Ireland and the Open, I just end up staying up till three and four. And I've now renamed uh, GMT, minus 10 GMT. It's uh, EHT, Eastern Herbie time, um, <laughs> uh, which I was very happy to, um, you know, it was great staying up. But I, I just noticed this calmness in the, in the discussion and forget what I noticed, but the chat from the commentary team, there was a lot of chat going on, but when Paul McGinley's chiming in and complimenting um, Pewey on the discussion, complimenting you on the acceptance of the discussion, it says a lot, you know, because Paul McGinley, you know, Ryder Cup captain, one of the Europe's greatest players. What did, what did you think when you hear, you know, some of the commentary chat? I didn't listen too much of the commentary, um, but I know Sunday night after we got here and we'd started celebrating probably about 3am after our wizard sticks had got to about the height of our beards. Um, Nick said that he wanted to find the footage from Sunday and, and watch it back and, you know, listen to our discussions over the ball and, and listen to, you know, and just be like, Oh, I want to, I want to work out how I can get better. And I was like, mate, you know what? I don't think you can get much better. We discussed every shot really, really well out there. We had really good plans. We didn't, there's nothing that I would go back and change about the way that we, discuss any shots or you know the, the the processes we went through to hit any of the shots like you said we were so calm out there i watched back the replays and i look at you know a hole 25 footer on 10 to to get one in the lead and it's like at that point it's just mayhem i'm pulling shots out of anywhere to try and stay in the lead and you look at nick and it's just calmness complete calmness on his face he might have been dying inside but you know that 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 look you give on the outside uh, it was, you know, it was total calmness. It never looked like he was flustered out there. I mean, you've never won a European tour event as a caddy, Nick, and he just looked like he'd been there 15 times and done it before. And then, yeah, I, I mean, I tried myself. I tried to keep that kind of attitude the whole way through. I wanted to, I wanted to look like I was the most experienced one there and I wanted to look like it was going to be hard to beat me out there. Um, you know, and there's obviously like probably not, the goal of what I wanted to look like, but that, you know, the, the, the body language and the, you know, the emotions that I let out, I wanted to, I wanted to make that look like, you know, that I was, <clears throat> I was the guy that you had to beat that day. And if you were going to beat me, it was going to take some really special golf. And certainly mate, that's exactly what it looked like the whole step of the way. It looked like you were completely in control. You both 
was certainly in control and calm and, um, you know, that was just, just so good to see. A few questions too, so around. I'm going to add one more on that as well. And I learned this from the first time I won too, is that it's not, you don't need to play perfect rounds of golf to win a golf tournament. You know, there's, there's probably, there's probably going to be one or two turning points for the day where you, where it's really important that you get those momentum swings, right. But outside of that, you don't have to play perfect golf. And I felt like that was the way it went on Sunday. I felt like the pars on seven and eight and the bunk shots on 15 and 16 were the really crucial points of the day where those go the other way and it's a different golf tournament. But at the time I was really able to step into those, those tough scenarios yeah. and execute really well. And that was kind of, why we ended up on this side of the result. Yeah. Can I ask, um, you know, you obviously played with Johannes Veerman, who looks like a fine young golfer, looks like a, a good fella and beautiful golf swing. And I think Pui had some history with Johannes, had caddied for Johannes before. Correct, yeah. Did that, you know, help hinder, you know, it looks like, you know, he, he just kept getting the door slammed shut. He got to, you know, leveled it up and then it was like, bang, slam the door shut, bang, slam the door shut. And then, you know, fell away a little bit at the end there as you kept powering on. Does, does that come into the mindset or, you know, do, does it just change the relationship for the day or was anything around that that made it easier, harder, difficult? Yeah, we definitely, I mean, we had a laugh about it before the round that, uh, I, I mean, I called Pui in October last year and, um, he left Johannes after Johannes finished fourth in Cyprus uh, to come caddy for me. So obviously there was, you know, from Johannes's point of view, there would be a lot of motivation for him to turn around and go like, you left the wrong guy and, you know, you should have stayed with me because I won this tournament, you know, could have been a lot of motivation for him to do that. So we did, we had a laugh about it, but I think once we got out in the golf course, it was, you know, we, we forgot, oh, I mean, I forgot about that very quickly. I, I don't know what it was like for those two, but, there was, there was nothing for me that I wanted to prove to Nick or anyone that he made the right decision. I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about Johannes because he, he played very nicely. He's, he's a great, he's a great golfer. He's going to, he's, he's going to get that done one day. He's going to get into that same position and win a tournament one day. To me, it just it reminded, he reminded me so much of myself in earlier days when I'd not experienced what I've experienced so far in playing in final groups and playing, late on Sunday um, when you got a chance to win a tournament, there was just, you know, there was just the telltale signs of someone who was just inexperienced in, in that area, which is absolutely fine um, because you need to go through that a couple of times to figure it out. And, you know, probably as a result of that, I, I felt like I personally, I felt like I was going to beat him at the end of the day, regardless of what happened. Mm. You know, he made a great part on 14 to, to tie the lead and, I still felt like I had I had the ability to beat him that day more times than not, um, and yeah, like I said, I really don't want to say anything bad about Johannes because he's great. He's a great player. He's doing so many things right. He played so nicely that final round. He didn't didn't make it easy for us um, to win the tournament. So um, it had the feel of looking like one of those classic like match play matches, you know, like in pennant that you used to go through where you hit a little bit left and right, but you keep coming back and, and putting the pressure on someone and, and it just goes one way or the other. And uh, it sort of felt like that and you did a great job of that. Yeah, he looks like a great golfer and I don't know, I've never met him, but uh, looks like a very presentable, young, fine young man and, and with a golf swing like he's got, you know, sh- should and would, will do really well. Um, Moscow, I think yes. he's got a lot of tools that will make him a, a very good player in years to come. 
Yeah, for, for me, knowing the dynamics of the situation, I, I thought Johannes did an amazing job. I thought he played great, held it together really well. Um, uh, and from a team perspective, knowing you gave Pui a call and basically coaxed him away from Johannes after a fourth in Cyprus and after Johannes's career was going in a nice direction, for Pui to take that risk of leaving something really good uh, – Again, and then, you know, fast forward a few weeks and Pui's getting ready for the final two events and the race to Dubai and Herbie's like, hey, mate, oh, I'm not coming. Like, you know, everything that, that, that played out in that, the beginning of that relationship 2.0 and then, yeah, having Ireland happen the way it did was just, I think, so rewarding for Pui as well, um, just everything that happened there. Uh, but, um Mate, what, a couple of questions around what were you feeling or your mindset on that back nine? What, what were some of the things that you can recall thinking or recognising about your mindset or attitude coming in down the stretch? I guess there was probably, there was probably just a couple of things really that, uh, that stand out. I think I somehow managed to not really think about the situation too much in terms of I was leading the golf tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tried as hard as I could to keep that scoring goal at the front of my mind. You know, I felt like if I got to 20 under, no one was going to beat me. And that was my number. The ho- That was my number basically the whole week was trying to, trying to get to that. So I did a really good job of sort of keeping that at the forefront of my mind and, and not worrying about whether I had a one shot leader or a two shot leader, or I was tied to the lead. I think a combination of two things of really feeling like I stepped into the challenge rather than, rather than uh, imagine, Imagine if you're driving down the road and, you know, if, you, if you're just driving normally, you don't worry about crossing over the lines on either side of the road when you're in your lane. If someone says to you, like, don't hit either side, all of a sudden you drive very differently. You drive very defensively because you're trying not to hit either side. I guess that's kind of the analogy you'd put on when you're playing with the lead is all of a sudden you turn into someone who's trying not to make mistakes. And I tried to really step into not worrying, like, not worrying about whether I make mistakes. It was like, I want to try and hit the shot that's required right here and, and be aggressive to that. And if I get it wrong, that's fine. It's not the end of the world. I'm going to have this situation plenty more times and I back myself to probably not get it wrong more often than not. So um, there's a combination of that. And then I, I had a really good chat with Shane Warren at the Dunhill links a couple of years ago. And I, I just talked to him about, a, a, you know, performing under pressure and a bunch of that kind of stuff. And, and he's one his one little almost saying to himself was almost a bit of like, watch this. You know, he play, he's playing in front of a lot of people. It was rather than rather than being uh, swallowed up in the moment, he was almost like, you know, watch this. I'm going to, I'm going to do this, watch this. And I, I just try to almost have that attitude of every shot, like watch this. I'm going to hit this shot here, you know, and like almost, you're almost trying to show off in front of everyone. And it's, you know, it's probably not the, it's probably the most ideal way to look at it. But you know, when you, when you are in that pressure situation, it was, it felt like a really good way to kind of help me step into the, the moment and step into um, just hitting a good shot rather than trying to avoid hitting a bad shot either way. Uh, and that would probably the, that would probably the two things on the back line that I was trying to feel like um, just really stepping into hitting a good shot versus trying to avoid hitting a bad shot. And yeah, yeah if I, angry on that final round it was probably more out of frustration of making scared golf swings rather than 
stepping into the shot that needed to be hit and forgetting anything that was, you know, whether there was water left or trees right or anything like that that would potentially um, catch you in trouble. Yeah. Where if you're on a driving range, you would know, you know, if you if you look at it, if you look at the tee shot down 18, you look at that water on the left hand side, and if you're on a driving range and you were hitting it on the line that you're picking off the tee, you wouldn't even look at the water. You wouldn't even think about it. You know, why does it change all of a sudden when you're out in the golf course and just trying to trying to feel like stepping into yeah, you're really stepping into the shot rather than avoiding trying to hit it in trouble. Love it, mate. That's fantastic. I know all the listeners are going to resonate with that so much about, you know, embracing the challenge, embracing the situation. Don't try and avoid it or fight against it because that's not productive. Um, and also that's why everyone practices and trains and works hard is to get themselves in those moments. So why try and avoid it when you're there? That's what you've worked towards. So, mate, I love the fact that you, you you know, embraced it, stepped into it. I love that attitude mindset that Warnie has around watch this, around showing off, because it just, again, helps you to connect to hitting a good shot more than uh, attaching to avoiding a, a poor shot. So um, that's awesome. Now, one thing that I really oh, yeah. want... Sorry, I just want to add on that too. Like, don't get me wrong, there was... I had four or five conversations with myself on Sunday where I was like, this is super uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, you try to play golf under circumstances where this is not normal. Yeah. And it's super uncomfortable. But I was also like, this is exactly why I play this game. Like, yeah. It's uncomfortable, like fun too. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it was fun to enjoy that challenge. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. That's uh, so good. There's one question that I... I wanted to ask, and then someone else asked the same question or, or, or pretty close. So I, I noticed after your second shot into 18, you were walking up toward the green, and there was a moment when the camera was on you that I could actually see you getting emotional. Okay, so someone said, what were you thinking after your second shot into 18 and that walk up to the green? What was going through your mind? It was actually, it was actually almost one of the trickiest walks for the whole week because the tournament was over. I'd won. There was, I couldn't lose from there, but my mind was so programmed to suppress any of that kind of emotion and any of that kind of thought process and just focus on the next shot that I had in hand that I was almost like, there was almost this internal conflict going on as to like, I want to just walk up and take in this moment because I've never walked up the 18th fairway on, on, on the 72nd hole of the tournament with a three-shot lead, knowing that I was going to win. I've never, I've never been able to do this before. I want to, I want to take this in, and I want to look at everyone in the crowd that's that's applauding me, and look at the leaderboard and, and see my name up the top, and just you know, just really take everything in. But there was something, something in in me deep down that that just wouldn't let me do it. Um, mm-hmm. There was something in there that was just like, no, just go and go and focus on this chip shot and like make sure this chip shot gets in there to a you know to a a, a putt that was basically unthree puttable. Um, it was it was actually quite a difficult kind of walk up there, and then we, we, I think we had to wait. JV took a little bit of time to hit his shot as well, and it was raining, and it was yeah, it was just a, it was a really strange walk up there and. Like Pewie and I are just kind of chatting, like under our breath, like, "Can we celebrate yet? Like, is this is this too early to celebrate?" Or like, it was it was pretty funny, but um, yeah, it was it was a really cool kind of walk up eighteen there. 
Can you can you remember that moment where you, your emotions might have come to the surface a bit more than how you'd let them, and what what was driving that? Like, did you recognise that moment at all before you sort of hit that chip shot? Um, a little bit. I mean, I think my entire career, I've I, I'm someone who's very emotional um, deep down, yeah. so I think I've conditioned myself to to suppress so much emotions. Um, and it carries over into life as well. There's times in life where I'm actually like a little bit concerned for myself as to how much I'm like, why are you okay with that? Um, you know, there's, there's just, I've, I've almost conditioned myself to like control my emotions so much. I almost had to talk myself into being emotional after, you know, after I won, uh, yeah. You know, you kind of walk in, I'm used to walking through the crowd to get to scoring and basically just running because I don't want to get caught up in the moment. But I, I had to be like, no, slow down. Like I want to experience everyone around me just cheering and being so happy for me. Um, I definitely remember the moment after we, we kind of done, done all the photos and done the press and done, um, done interviews and, and done signings, everything like that. And we kind of got into, we got into the gym in the hotel to have a shower. And I kind of just sat down and went like, Oh my God, like we just did it. You know, it was kind of, that was kind of the moment where it hit. And I, I was like, I didn't know whether to cry or to laugh or to like, it was just, it was like one of the nicest moments ever. And I think having experienced a lot of, times where you don't win in a final round too, I think it made you appreciate that so much more because you're like, this is not going to happen every single time. And I want to really appreciate the fact that it did happen this time. Yeah. I love that. And mate, the emotion, when you hold that putt on 18, just the fist pump, uh, the emotion. Uh, the thing I loved the most was as soon as you plucked that ball out of the hole, how much respect you had for Johannes and how you went straight to him and, um, patted him on the back and congratulated him for a great week. But I think the image that's going to stick with me forever is I didn't realise how strong you were because Pew Dog Bear hugged you and basically <laughs> wrapped his legs around you. And I thought, honestly, you'll be out for years with a back injury. But um, that image for me and for the team, I know for Dom the same, is something that's going to be imprinted in our minds forever. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal moment. I'll give you there. Um, firstly, the part, I, so I hadn't bogeyed a par four for the entire week. So I really wanted to make that part because it meant that I wouldn't have bogeyed a par four the entire week. Yeah. So I'm making a part. Two things that I took out of the win in Dubai. Firstly, I smashed the high five with Christian. Like he was my, like he was, we were a foursome partner and we both just won the tournament. I was like, yeah. I looked at it later. I was like, I just beat this guy in a tournament. Like this guy had, he's respectfully saying well done, but He's like, I hate you right now. And I've just slapped him like, yeah, bro. Like, you know, it was, I, I felt, I, I felt pretty bad about that. So the first thing I thought was like, that's not how you, that's not how we treat JB. Cause honestly, he played so nicely for that day and he had such a good finish. And I really wanted to actually like wholeheartedly tell him that he played so nicely and that, you know, and give him some genuine encouragement from that. I didn't want it to come from way so yeah I mean there was that and then I think over the chip shot I was saying to, I was whispering to his ear I'm like when I hold this part you're gonna get the biggest hug you've ever had so he knew it was coming I was yeah. like just make sure just make sure you get that flag I don't yeah. care what you do 
we get that flag stick off the flag. So yeah, um, yeah, we both knew there was a big cuddle coming. And it was yeah, it was pretty funny. I didn't know, I didn't expect him to jump up like that, but it made for a pretty good photo. I thought it was a phenomenal photo, mate. It was it was sensational, and uh, no, it's um, it's awesome. We are uh, just yeah. It's like a big rock and roll wrestling move, a big flying W. You know, like... Oh, mate. <laughs> Kiwi's got some moves. Don't get me wrong. He's got some moves. But, uh, yeah, I'll yes. show you boys that. But I, won't, I can't put it on the show now, but, yeah, he had some good moves last night. Oh, Sunday yeah. night. Yeah. So, so, mate, Roscoe, I don't know if you've got much more for, for, for Herbie, but... Um... Well, no, not a lot. Um, you know, the, the little things of that sort of curious, make my mind curious about the world of a, a professional elite uh, athlete and golfer. You know, you, you go through this win, you do the press, you talk to the people, and then that night you end up in Edinburgh. Is it, you know, does, does you just have to just jump in a car and race to an airport and, and get on a commercial plane or is there a private jet or what, what? how do you get across to Edinburgh that night so you can, you know, start having a bit of a celebratory moment? Uh, so the tour had a charter uh, for us because if we fly into the UK right now and someone else on the flight tests positive for COVID afterwards, we have to self-isolate for 10 days. I think it is um, regardless if we're vaccinated or not. So I'm fully vaccinated. And if I had a flown commercial and been on a flight with someone else who tests positive, then we have to isolate. So to put on a charter, obviously everyone has to test. I think everyone tested either Saturday or Sunday to test negative. We're in a bubble. So you, you would think you probably couldn't um, get COVID within the bubble. So pretty safe that everyone on that flight is going to test negative. So yeah, we were, uh, we were on a charter flight um, Sunday night. And then, yeah, we, once, once we got here to the Airbnb, we were able to, we we're able to let our hair down a little bit and, and celebrate um, properly. But yeah, like it, it was, it was a bit funny there for, for a couple of hours, just sort of been around all the other tour players who are, no doubt kind of almost groveling a bit because they didn't win that week. Um, you know, you're the only guy there that did win and you, know, you, f- you finish second and you still feel like someone beat you that week. So we sort of couldn't celebrate really too much around the other two players and, and I guess rub it in too much. But yeah, once we we're off on our own, we we're able to sort of kick things off and, and really feel like we, uh, we celebrated that one. And all the guys get put into their own various different Airbnb type accommodations there and maintain this bubble type structure before this week's event, which is down at the Renaissance Club. Is that right? Yeah. I think some guys are staying in hotels. Uh, we were able to get an Airbnb. I've, there's so many rules going on and they change like daily. Yep. So I'm not really too across all of it. I, I know everyone's staying in all sorts of different um, spots this week, but yeah, it's nice to it's nice to have somewhere that's a bit more open than a hotel room, and um, you know, not not feel like you walk out the door and you see three other guys heading to the course as well with you. So, yep. Uh, now this time, yeah, well, wasn't this cool. wasn't this time last year, but it was after the Scottish Open last year where I think uh, you finished was fourth. Is that right? Albeit that third round, you know, three days of excellent play. You know, the third round was a little bit challenging with weather wise and whatever. You know, thoughts coming into the Scottish Open back at Renaissance Club down there in East Lothian this week. You know, what do you what do you go into uh, this week with? Um, hang on, other than, yeah, other than, other than seventy five red wines. It's weird, man. I, I really, honestly haven't thought about it. Um, yeah, I've played nicely here before. Yep. It feels pretty strong, so it's not going to be a walk in the park to to play well. I haven't even touched my club since I finished on Sunday, so. I'll kind of, uh, mate, I don't know. I, I think I'm going to tee it up on Thursday and have zero expectations. Yep. 
it's not very often I you mean, get the luxury. Not very often you get the luxury of having a Rolex Series event and actually almost having it as a rest and recovery week in preparation for the Open. You know, look, it's not a not a rest and recovery week, but I tell you what, from the stress that I was in from Thursday morning leading the tournament through to Sunday night, still leading the tournament, I needed a couple of days off. Yeah. Um, I'm probably going to play five weeks on the trot, so. I was uh, I was very happy to take Monday Tuesday off. Who knows? Might even take tomorrow off. I'd, depends on how I'm feeling when I wake up. So, my last last question last question on that point. I don't think the golf game is going to be in any issue. I think it's just uh, keeping the fatigue levels down. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Last question on that point, mate. Wire to wire, like that's hard. Wire to wire, and I know we've had a a bit of a chat in the past about when you're contending, how difficult it is to switch off. And this week you had to pretty much deal with that for four nights straight. Um, what did you learn this week from being, you know, a wire-to-wire winner uh, that you think you're going to be able to carry forward to help you uh, manage those sort of situations in the future? I think there's an acceptance there. I, I mean, I naively probably thought that if your name's Rory McIlroy and you're leading the Irish Open going into the final round that you almost wouldn't care. Um, not because, I, I guess, not for any other reason. He's, you know, he's won four major championships. Why would he? Why would he care if he wins the Irish Open or not? But I could nearly guarantee you that anyone in that field last week that was leading going to the final round would have wouldn't have slept well, and they would have been anxious about what was going to happen the next day. It's just human nature; it's going to happen. So, it's not it's it's never going to feel normal. It's it is never going to feel normal, and that's okay. Um, I definitely learned that. Um, awesome. And I guess just, I guess just finding different ways to distract yourself that are, um, probably healthy ways of distracting yourself. Um, I'm someone who's an, I, I overthink a lot. I definitely think about everything in life a lot. So I need to find, I, I definitely need to find the right ways to distract myself. And, you know, I, I FaceTime, I FaceTime you, Jamie, yeah. uh, on Saturday night, um, FaceTime a couple of friends, just, just chatted shop, really just whatever, whatever, you know, um, whatever was kind of on the agenda. There was no chat a lot about golf. Um, yeah, you know, it's just, I guess I'd spend a lot of time trying, I guess, trying to avoid thinking about the next day. Whereas it's just, it's going to happen naturally. There's nothing, you you can't really stop that, but just to understand, you know, just understanding that that is normal, that, that's not something that you need to stop doing. That's not something that's going to come with time. It's just, you know, I, I think probably the only thing that is going to come with time is more of the acceptance that like sometimes that will go your way and sometimes that won't. And yeah. if it doesn't go your way, that's okay. Yeah. They were, they were probably, they were probably the things that I learned last week being, uh, being in contention or, or you know, I think leading every single round um, going into it. And, you know, just knowing that that was, that was where I belonged. You know, there's yeah. absolutely zero reason for why I shouldn't be in the lead of that golf tournament after any of those rounds. So, yeah, uh, I hate the word deserved, but you know, I earned, I earned my way to be leading after all those rounds, and that's nothing that I should be trying to take away from myself. Mate, love it. That is absolutely phenomenal what you just said there. Um, you shouldn't be taking away from yourself that you deserve that you earned it. Um, so. Just like you're sipping on that glass of wine there now, mate, you uh, earned that, you deserve that. 
Thank you so much for joining us, PewDog and Luke. Also, thank you for joining us, Roscoe. Um, this is going to be a very popular episode that a lot of people are going to resonate with, um, whether they're off 5, 15, 20. What Herbie went through on Sunday, a lot of golfers experience. They just don't know how to manage it and deal with it. And Herbie's given them a lot of, uh, really a lot of great tools to be able to take into their own game and, you know, win some cash off their mates and uh, maybe have a chance to win the monthly medal back at their, their local club. Um, but, mate, so proud of you. Uh, your growth the last couple of months since we're a concession at WGC, um, your commitment, everything that you've, you've done has been phenomenal and you deserve this moment, mate. Really, really proud of you. My growth hasn't been much since I played with Roscoe at Peninsula that day when I was the most hungover human in the world and shot five under with Persimmon Club. So, so it's still one of my most talked about golf experiences in my life because, you know, people obviously got to see a little bit that, you know, we'd done that. And, you know, when I sort of regale them with the story about you playing with 75-year-old golf clubs, um, the, the ability to shape a persimmon driver under the wind over the wind left to right right to left stinger whatever you wanted and then shoot five on the back of not a lot of sleep and uh, a little bit of celebratory action the night before um just still blows me away and uh when i tell people that story they don't believe it and it's absolutely fact and one of my great uh, golf experiences was getting to play with you and i still appreciate that and uh i think um i think there might be uh, round two have to come when you come back because I think you and yeah. uh, Luke Mackey did win, but uh, I did sink a putt on the 18th for the uh, to win the uh, press on the last. So um, I, I'll always have that as my little celebratory trophy. Uh, Lucas, thank you very much. If Luke Mackey, myself, and you two are in the country all the time, don't we need to do that again? Very good. Yeah, that was, uh, I'll never forget, Roscoe, just that last story, the second shot into the second hole. Uh, he he two-iron into, two into a par four, and he backs off the ball. I'm like... Um, what happened there, mate? What was he like? Oh, I thought I was going to fall over. Um, <laughs> and then proceeds to hit a two iron to three feet and make birdie. I was like, oh my god! So to yeah. shoot five under those conditions, those clubs, uh, that basically sums up Lucas Herbert. He is a freak of a talent. Um, as those bunker shots showed coming down the stretch, they that bunker shot on fifteen was just one of the greatest shots I've ever seen. Do we want to talk about those bunker shots before you leave? Because I kind of want to talk about them. Yeah, come on, please. Let's go. Hey, it's your podcast. You can talk, you can talk about whatever you want. It's great. My God. So Pewie and I have a running joke that Pewie's got a memory card slot in his brain that's just filled with ridiculous short game shots that I've hit. We have, a, we have an ongoing, like, so I eat peanut butter and banana sandwiches on the course, and every week I buy the bananas, the peanut butter, the sandwich, like the bread, the sandwich bags, everything to make – the sandwiches and then it's like we always have bets as to like then how do I get all this stuff into Pewie's room so that he makes the sandwiches for me there's always a short game bet somewhere I'll be off the ground I'll be like all right chip this in for sandwiches and he'll agree to it and I'll chip it in somewhere or anyway so his memory card's full so we get a 15 I hit that shot up there and I'm like yeah put that one in the memory card slot mate and then 16 16 it's just it's disgusting there's pins up on a on that back ridge and there's not a lot of room. It's a 40-yard bunker shot, 30-yard bunker shot. It's just exactly the spot that you don't want to be in. Yeah. You've got the lead. As Radar says, you could easily thin that on the road. And I wander back from having to look up the green, and he's like, mate, there's, there's just a little bit more spot, a, bit of, a little bit more memory left on the on the uh, memory card to, to put another <laughs> shot in there. Put one on. So I'm like, all right, you want me to hit one close for you? He's like, go on, hit one close. Hit that shot and wander back to the bag and go, 
That one good enough for you? That'll make the memory card slot. Yeah, well, I can see the look you gave him. You two were having a bit of a chat back and forth. It was, uh, was hilarious. It was, it was kind of pretty funny because it doesn't really look like it on camera, but we were just both smirking at each other going, like, you absolute dickhead. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> filthy, filthy. But uh, no, mate, as, as you said, we've uh, anyone that's watched you play golf more than three holes is going to see some ridiculous short game shot come out of you. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, phenomenal to see, mate. But uh, thank you so much for joining us. Have fun over there this week and next week at the Open. is going to be exciting. So, um, yeah, uh, looking forward to uh, chatting again in the next few days. But uh, thanks for joining us, mate. Really appreciate it. And um, we look forward to uh, taking you out for another hit and for me to shank another iron on a par three. So, um, thanks, so- boys. And- Roscoe mentioned before that a lot of people have passed on their congrats. I've received a million messages over various forms of social media and I just want to say, take this opportunity to say thank you to anyone who has sent me a message. Uh, I've definitely read it. Uh, I can't respond to all of them, but I've definitely read it and seen it and thoroughly appreciate this support. I feel like there's 24 million people in Australia, about 23 of them have messaged me um, saying well done and it's very nice to have the support of what feels like about 99.9% 99.9% of the nation behind me. Yeah. No, mate. I agree more, mate. We've both got great messages. So, uh, yeah, nice uh, nice sentiments. Well done. Well, just in closing, Lucas, thank you once again for me for adding to my July enjoyment of golf and all things sport. Uh, got off to a great start for me and it was a pleasure and a privilege to be able to watch you play and uh, pass on those congratulations. You know, you deserve all of the uh, success and the um, everything that you've learned from it. The people will get a lot out of this podcast. You give very generously of your time. It won't be the last time we get the opportunity to talk to you. It's been three or four podcasts that you've given us your time and uh, the insights are invaluable, uh, enjoyable, and uh, we love having the opportunity to talk to you on what was a very big weekend for Australian golf. Uh, let's face it, you know, you're part of that history yeah. now. Um, winners all around the world on amateur, f- the women's golf, the men's game on all tours. It was great. You were part of it. That's history. Let's make some more history, all right? You blame Jamie for that because he's got me after a couple of red wines and I can't say no. Good man. <laughs> all right, Good everyone. Kids. We'll see, you. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast by Dare to Dream. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head over to daretodream.com.au for exclusive access to the free video program, Eight Tips to an Unbreakable Mental Game. Join us next time on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast.